The parable of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15. Don't turn to it. That's your homework. We're not going to go anywhere with it this morning. I just kind of want to bring out a point of this. Um, it's been a favorite for centuries, for thousands and thousands of Christians. You might be one of those. Um, that's your go-to, the prodigal son, to help you understand the love of God. Um, and traditionally, the focus of the parable has been on the the reckless, extravagant spending uh, of the wayward son, right, the younger son, um, and applied primarily to the reckless lives of so many of us before the Holy Spirit got a hold of our lives. And, and I'll just kind of interject here, blessed are you who didn't go down that road, right? You didn't need to go down that road. Um, blessed are you. Um, and a great valuable focus is on that wayward son, that, that focus on the sinner. But recognize that that parable has some other titles, depending on what paraphrase what, what, what version of the Bible you're looking at. And I understand also that that title was, was added way after the actual writing. Um, people just applied some, some of the titles, the parable of the two brothers, the parable of the lost son, parable of a loving father, and the parable of a forgiving father. And they're all very accurate, but the title that I'm really beginning to lean into is, is really the parable of the prodigal God. Um, in fact, a fantastic read is Timothy Keller's The Prodigal God, from which I got my title for today's message, Our Prodigal God. Um, and in his book, the primary focus isn't on the extravagant, lavish, foolish spending of the wayward sinner, um, but it was on the extravagant love of God. I mean, that's where he placed that focus in that parable, and I, and I just love that um, because that is a, that's an accurate portrayal of, of that parable. Um, the father would give anything to both sons, but the older son just didn't ask. And sometimes we're like that, right? We, we don't ask and then we, we just, we struggle. And then we get angry at God. And when he wants to give us so much and we just, we just, we don't avail ourselves to everything that he has to offer. Another great read is the book of, from which I pulled today's sermon, a lot of the information I'm going to present. Dr. Eric Vail, he's a theology professor at Mount Vernon Nazarene University in Ohio. Um, and I found out also uh, his dad, Dr. Vernon Vail, uh, this is Dr. Eric Vale. Uh, Vernon Vale, his dad, was a childhood friend of Dale Fleming and also one of my very favorite professors at Point Loma, so I just throw that out. I mean, in the opening pages, Dr. Vale shares some concerns, some questions that he had growing up in the Church of the Nazarene. He writes this, I could not figure out how it all worked. Jesus had been crucified centuries before I was born. I did not yet exist, but this long-ago event was somehow intended for my salvation. I had not yet sinned. How is preemptive atonement even possible? Furthermore, if Christ made atonement for sin, how on earth could I connect with what he had done across a chasm of nearly 2,000 years? His blood was supposed to cleanse me of my sin, but I, I couldn't go back in time to have any contact with the actual blood he shed. Because I, I really, truly wanted to understand. Now, I recognize that we're all different, right? Some of us, and I, I envy these people who lean more into the, a contemplative rather than an analytical aspect of their faith. I, I, I see people, and I, 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 I try to be more contemplative, and I try to lean into that, but I'm, I, that's not the way God made me. He he made me, I, I want to under, I want to know all the, I want to know, I want to systematize, I want to understand every bit of it, that's just, that's just the way God made me, all right? Um, kind of difference between left brain and right brain, I, I, I guess. Um, I was reading a paper this week in preparation for this message, and this writer points out, whether, whether it's true or not, that, that a part of the Reformation 
might not have done us well. Um, he, he makes the point that, that as you choose between either the old Catholic Church at that time, you know, um, or, or the Protestant, the new Protestant faith, um, and again, I'm going to say this very, very carefully. I don't want to insult anybody, but he said that, that it, with the Catholic faith, with its ritual, rich, incredible ritual, it lends itself to just a certain amount of, and again, I say this so carefully, a certain amount of superstitious, as in um, kind of a cultic, you know, if you do everything just right, then, and if the priest does everything just right, then, then you're all good to go. And again, I'm saying that very carefully, but I think the bigger danger, and he pointed this out, is the Protestant Reformation, kind of born out of the age of in the Enlightenment and the age of reason. And he makes the claim that, that a lot of people actually lost their faith as they got super analytical and, and, and dug into trying to, you know, think in that manner. And so that just, just kind of a thought to, to think about there. Um, but he, he writes this, and I, and I love this. Don't let the comprehension of salvation rob you of the joy of salvation. I know a lot of pastors like me, we get up here and we, we, just, we just love doing all of that. And, and I got a very, very, uh, 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 my pastor's son grew up with him, good, good close friends. Um, he now attends, he grew up Nazarene, but he now attends a church that's, that's liturgical, that, that, um, that has the rituals. And I, and I was like, well, well you're a Nazarene. What are you doing? Going to... He said, well, well Pastor, I... he's very, very smart. Very, very smart. Um, I just don't really care to listen to somebody's opinion about the Bible. I'm a smart guy. I, I study, and, and, I, and when I go into a church that has the ritual, it just it gives me peace, right? Like, like the, the brainy peach preacher doesn't give me. <laughs> um, so, it, so whoever you are, whichever side you lean toward, it's good. It's really, it's, it's amazing. I'm forever indebted to a, a young lady who is, who's not here this morning, but she's normally here. She sat through my, 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 horrible, my horribly boring church membership class, and she made the comment, um, I, I, just, I just love Jesus. Pastor, why do we all got to make it so complicated, right? Just, just can't we just love Jesus? And I, and I get that now, and I, I'm, again, I'm, I'm indebted because I I didn't quite understand that until she said it, and I, it kind of took me back just a little bit. Um, she, just, she just wanted to love Jesus. Um, and again, many, I, I realize that many would agree with her, but, but one of my concerns as a pastor, and I know it's, it's one of Dr. Vale's concerns as a professor at a Nazarene University, and it's also one of the Apostle John's concerns, I think, as he writes his fourth apostle, uh, a fourth uh, gospel. Um, was for those that had not yet placed their faith in Christ. They, they hadn't yet experienced the love of Jesus. And, and some of us right-brained people, we just, we just need a little bit more information. Um, doubting Thomas, he's becoming more and more my hero. Um, he, if, if he hadn't been asking, you know, explain to me. I, I want to know how it works. Jesus, you're, you're not making any sense. Explain, right? He, he just needed that, just a little bit more information. And, I, and I, again, I think about it, and I'm sure Jesus would have found another time to say it, but Thomas's need for an explanation really does, it gave Jesus a chance to proclaim himself as the, the life, right? The way, the truth, and the life, that that. He, was, he could explain himself through somebody's doubt, so that, that makes me feel okay, all right? Um, and by the way, uh, Peter is kind of my dinglehopper. Is that, is that the right word? 
Um, if you work closely with me, if you're on the board, you understand I say things without engaging my brain sometimes. So it's the way I'm made. That's the way God made me. Um, anyway, this is the reason why the Apostle Paul, uh, John, wrote his gospel account. And we read this last week, and I'll probably end up reading it several times in the course of this series. This is John chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe, right? That's why he wrote his gospel. He wasn't writing to people who already had the joy of the Lord he was writing to people who were, you know, they were skeptical. They, they needed some more. That you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, admittedly, my questions weren't nearly as, as deep or loving as, as, as Dr. Vale's. Um, my greatest concerns, my reservations you know, about living forever was just a bit more pedestrian. My biggest concern was I simply didn't want to live forever. That kind of freaked me out just a little bit. Right? And, and I didn't want to have to play the harp for all eternity. That, that freaked me out even more. Um, See, so as a kid, I recognized that life wasn't full of unicorns and rainbows. Not that anything ha horrible happened whatsoever in my life. I had a great upbringing, you know, all that. Um, but just that never-ending joy-sucking aspect of life where you're forced to do stuff you don't want to do and you're not allowed to do the stuff that you're fairly certain will give you true joy and satisfaction is just like... Forever? Forever? Any Sandlot fans? A little toss out for that. Um, I, I hated music. Right? I hated music, and it's not simply because I couldn't sing, which I can't sing. Um, but my parents, I don't know what they were thinking. They thought, well, let's give the boy a trombone, then he'll learn to love music. <laughs> I, I don't know what they were thinking. I, I think that was what my dad played, and, and, and that was sitting in the closet, so I got to play the trombone. Didn't make it through a single year. It was just horrible. And actually, I love music. But I just don't like being forced to produce something that I simply can't produce. Even though I still dream and pray that maybe one day I'll be able to sing. Um, my family hopes that I can't and won't. That's <laughs> the way it is. Um, so the thought of leaving all this potential of this crazy awesome earth, we camped a lot and, and, and I got firsthand seat to just how amazing the earth is. Um, that thought just kind of hanging out in a cloud forever, it just didn't appeal to me, right? It just wasn't something I was looking forward to. Um, in fact, it scared me to death. I, I would lay awake at night, and I, would, I wouldn't pray because I knew you couldn't time travel, but I kind of just hoped, I wished that I had never been born. That way I wouldn't have to deal with all this anxiety that living forever really, it, it, it just rocked me. It scared me to death. Turns out my idea of heaven was a bit off the mark. <laughs> Apparently, you're not hanging out on a cloud playing the harp, right? The gospel isn't primarily about being saved as much as it is, or being saved and going to heaven, as much as it is about crossing over from death to life, from sorrow and pain and disappointment to joy, everlasting joy and happiness. That's what the gospel is about. And that's what Jesus came to do, is to bring life and replace a young boy wishing that he'd never been born. The picture that Jesus and the gospel writers consistently and adamantly presented, it wasn't about going to heaven, but rather about bringing heaven to earth. And, 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 a, and a kind of a new picture, I, I'm kind of getting a sense of, of the Bible project. If any of you guys 
haven't seen that, take a look at it when you get home. It's just an amazing series of short little clips, about five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes on every topic. And it's just amazing, thebibleproject.com, check that out. Um, but they brought up this idea, and I, I really latched onto it, that reuniting heaven and earth. That, that when Christ re- returns, I, I'm getting the impression that that's really what's going to happen is heaven and earth are going to be reunited. That's <laughs> something I could get behind, right? Heaven on earth. Whew. Somebody, I wish somebody would have told me that when I was a little kid. Jesus says this in the first chapter of Mark's gospel, uh, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. After Jesus was put, or John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Um, not to go into the Greek, but that, that the, the good news is evangelical. I, it's not exactly, I can't say the Greek word. I'm not Greek. Didn't study the language. Um, but if you, if you are the feet that bring the news of Jesus Christ to people, you're an evangelical, right? You bring the good news. He said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. And, and, and to come near is kind of a Jewish way of saying it's here now, okay? It's not, it's almost, almost, like Jesus almost got here. He got here. In fact, Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrase says it like this. Time's up. God's kingdom is here Change your life, repent, and believe the good news. Believe the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying that his arrival is the beginning of the process of reuniting heaven and earth. In fact, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray exactly like that, that kingdom of God would begin to reign in their lives even now. Right? In Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, the disciples are asking, Hey, Jesus, how should we pray? He responds, well, this then is how you should pray. Our Father, and some of your version, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? That's our prayer. And Jesus says, pray that prayer. You don't have to die to experience heaven on earth. Jesus is saying that we're supposed to pray that God's kingdom would reign here on earth as it already does in heaven. Jesus started the process, which is why he can say the kingdom is near, the kingdom is here, right? He brought heaven to earth. He is God. He brought heaven to earth literally, not figuratively, metaphorically, anything like that, but literally. He started that process, and only when we allow him to be the Lord of our lives does the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God reign in our lives. And to top it off, <laughs> this is, it gets better, it gets better and better, He invites us to join in him in reuniting heaven and earth. And again, that's something I can get behind. I don't know about you. That's exciting. And then in the book of Revelation, the same apostle John tells us that when Jesus returns, heaven and earth will be permanently reunited. It says this in chapter 21, verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. In Jewish thought, Jerusalem always stands for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Babylon always stands for the kingdoms of this world, you know, violence and war and coercion and, and the like. Um, see, many people, they, they, when they think of the gospel, their view can be rather narrow. Maybe you're one of these people, I, I want, and I want to challenge you this morning to just broaden out that understanding just a little bit. Don't let go of this. But many people just, just have this narrow view that, you know, Jesus died for your sins. Repent and believe in Jesus so you can be forgiven and go to heaven when you die. Boom, that's it. Like the whole thing is just between you and God and everybody else. Right? I, I, I have nothing to do with any of y'all. It's me and God. Like, Right? 
actually the arrival of God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven because he's very, very, very Jewish and he doesn't like to say God. So you read in Matthew, you don't read kingdom of God, you read kingdom of heaven. That's just his little thing, being a good Jewish boy. The arrival of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven through Jesus Christ is the gospel. The arrival of heaven on earth is the gospel, not you dying and go to heaven and having a little party with Jesus. I mean, that, I'm not taking away that idea, but I'm just simply asking you, challenging you to broaden out your thoughts just a, just a little bit. And actually, um, it's not so much about, again, um, getting from here to there as much as it is about bringing there to here. Um, which is what God's been doing since the first chapter of Genesis and all the way through to the end of Revelation. That's what God has been doing, beginning to end, bringing heaven to earth, bringing heaven to earth. Um, he's actively answering our prayers, even for the atheist in the foxhole. Right? That's it's called prevenient grace, the grace that goes before. Every atheist in the world, God is just silently drawing, silently drawing, even answering their prayers as a way of drawing them and making himself real to them. This accurately, I think, presents and makes salvation both our future hope and our present reality right now, right here, today. Switching gears here. Uh, many people use these two terms, salvation and atonement, somewhat interchangeably. Um, they are different. But they're different in a way that if you take them apart, they won't make any sense. <laughs> that makes not a lick of sense there, Pastor, but, but that's just the, the way it is. Um, let me explain. In Dr. Vale's own words, salvation is the preservation or granting of life in the face of deadly or life-grinding circumstances. I love that. I love that. I, I had to quote him directly. Salvation directs us toward true life where death is scratching and clawing at our heels. Dr. Vale notes that in Genesis and Exodus alone, Check this out. The earth was saved, okay, salvation. The earth was saved from a desolate wilderness and without life. Um, Cain was saved from anyone seeking revenge against him. Noah and his family were saved from the destructive flood. Abraham and Sarah were saved from barrenness. Hagar and Ishmael were saved from dying in the, as outcasts in the wilderness. Egypt was saved from a famine, and then 400 years later, in turn, the Israelites were saved from slavery in Egypt. For every situation, salvation looks different. And again, I truly believe that even people who don't know Christ, they experience when they call out in these crazy moments, even though they might not believe in God, they cry out for God. He delivers them. He delivers them. Because he wants to draw them to himself. He wants to give them life even before they recognize that life is in him. We sang that just a little bit. Ere I knew him. Before I knew him. I always wonder, what ere, what in the world does that mean? It's like before I knew him, he loved me. Ere I knew him. The atonement, on the other hand, is a little bit different. A little bit more specific. At one mint works. Um, it's more specifically reconciliation. Bringing at one, which was once separate, bringing together. Um, and not just between you and God, but also between you and your neighbor and you and all of creation. In Dr. Vale's words, salvation is what we experience out of the atonement. The experience of salvation rests on the atonement. He gave me just a bunch of great phrases here. Atonement lies at the back of salvation, and this is the best one. Being reconciled with God lies at the heart of life-fostering salvation. Being away from the Lord who is the very beginning and source of life 
gets us into all the life-draining, deadly circumstances from which we cry out for salvation. Sometimes those circumstances of our own making as we walk apart from the Lord, but sometimes we're just swallowed up in the deathward currents of other people's alienation from God. We experience pain and sorrow because our next-door neighbor doesn't like God and they make bad choices, and we kind of get caught up in that and experience a little bit of pain and sorrow, not of our own doing. All creation is truly interconnected in this way. Now, again, in terms of, of a divine and human separation estrangement, um, and I'll get to, uh, to, to the divine and creation separation in a moment, um, Randy Maddox outlines the three dimensions of salvation that we looked at in our series that we just now finished. Uh, first, there's pardon, right? Salvation begun, or the deliverance immediately from the penalty of sin. We call that saving grace, right? We're justified, we're regenerated, and we're adopted as sons and daughters of the King, and then we have holiness, right? Salvation continued, right? We got it started, now it's continued. Or that moved progressively from the plague of sin. We called that sanctifying grace, sustaining grace, and sufficient grace. And then there's heaven, salvation finished, or being saved from the very presence of sin. In all these terms, excuse me, in terms of, now that's in, in, in terms of, of our estrangement from God. But in terms of all creation being reconciled with God, we see in Genesis, watch this, Genesis, God is creation's only possibility for life. In fact, the very act of creation is salvific. Right? In other words, no God, no life. Creation is only possible when God gives himself, gives of himself, because God is life, um, when God comes to dwell in creation, creation will have fullness of life. Fullness of life is in all creation responding to God's grace by expressing itself in love for God, neighbor, and for the rest of creation. God's creative activity is the God-given possibility of life in what otherwise would have been impossibility or death. Scripture starts with nothing but death and ends with the end of death. We see this from the very beginning to the very end of Scripture, right? It's the overarching story of the Bible. Death, no death. We read this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Let's call that the very, very beginning. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Hebrew words for formless really, we'll flesh it out a little bit, but this, this works really well. Um, uncultivated wilderness or desert-like. Right? And the word empty is it's desolate and uninhabited. In fact, this is what the prophets consistently warned that God would do to them if they didn't obey and if they wouldn't stop doing silly things. Right? I'll, I'll make you like a desert. Your land will be uninhabitable. Right? You're going to go back to the beginning where there's only death. Nothing but life, nothing but death, no life whatsoever except God. And then all the way at the end of Scripture, Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, he will wipe every tear from the eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. No more death. From beginning to end, God is working toward this abundant, unending life for the world and its inhabitants, it's us and everything you see all around us. And here's the exciting part. The incarnation was attended from the very beginning to be the fullest gift of God to his creation, for his creation, and with his creation so that it could come to the maximum experience of life under God's grace, under God's lordship. And where both 
life and death were distinct possibilities in the Old Testament. We see this in the New Testament. God inaugurates a new possibility for creation through Jesus Christ. Life without the shadow of death. Life without fear of death. Life without the belief that this sorrow and this disappointment will be never-ending, right, until I die. In Christ Jesus, we have life right now. And we don't have to fear all that. We, we experience it, but that's never the end of the story because of Jesus Christ. Now, again, if all this is new to you and it's making very little sense to you, you're in good company. Um, in John's third chapter, we, we read this earlier, one evening a man named Nicodemus came to see Jesus trying to make sense of it all. Chapter 3, verse 1, now there was a man, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a part of the brotherhood, never more than 6,000 of them at one time. Um, and they committed, committed to every day of their life following all of the scribal law. And there were thousands and thousands. I mean, it was an accomplishment just to, to remember them all, let alone in every moment of your day actually following it. That's what they committed to doing. We, we owe them a debt. That, that, that's holiness in a certain sense, right? He was also uh, a very wealthy. In chapter 19 of John, we learned that when Jesus died, Nicodemus brought about a hundred weight of, of elements, of a um, mixture of myrrh and aloes for the burial of Jesus. And, and only a wealthy person could have done that. And then finally, it says that he was the ruler of the Jews. He was a member of what was called the Sanhedrin. Group of about 70 men, sorry, no ladies were allowed. Um, they ruled every aspect of the Jewish life that the Romans told them that they weren't allowed to rule over anymore, or before them, the Greeks. Um, and one of their key tasks was to examine and deal with suspected false prophets. That was a big deal. So he shows up late one night to talk with Jesus. Verse 2, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with him. Now, there's two possibilities as to why he shows up at night. Number one, he could have been afraid, right? He's cavorting with the enemy, right? He would definitely lose his seat on the Sanhedrin if everybody found out, hey, he's hanging out with Jesus, right? The Pharisees were not happy with Jesus because he really upset their apple cart, right? He, he basically said, no, the law isn't everything that you make it out to be. In fact, it's a trap. It's a trap, but the other reason, I think, is the rabbis declared that the best time to study the law was at night when, when you were undisturbed and, and the hustle and bustle of the day had, had, had gone away. And so they said, hey, when you really study the word, do it, do it at night. And they recognized, Nicodemus might have recognized that Jesus, I mean, all day long, he was, the crowds were all around him. And we might very well come to the conclusion, I think this is a strong possibility that Nicodemus decided, you know, I got, I got to meet with this guy at night. Because I want some private, uninterrupted time to have a deep conversation with him. And I think Jesus recognized that. William Barclay in his daily Bible study series that Nicodemus was a puzzled man. A man with many honors and yet with something lacking in his life. And maybe you're at home, maybe you're here in the building and that describes you. There, there's, there's something lacking. Right? You, you tried to find joy and salvation on your own, and, and you're just you're always disappointed. It, it just doesn't work under your own power. Um, if this describes you, I want to challenge you, um, not only to open your ears and your eyes to what's going on around you, but to open your heart and just listen to what, what happens next. Listen to this. 
Verse 3, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And I just noticed this this week, and I had to do some digging to make sure that it wasn't just you know, my brain working overtime and coming up with silly conclusions. He doesn't say, very truly, I tell you, no one will eventually see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. He says, this is in the present tense. Right now, you cannot see the kingdom of God, and, and the opposite then is true. You can see the kingdom of God right now if you're born again. You do not have to wait to die to experience the kingdom of God. And I know a lot of people, maybe at home, maybe here in the building, that's, that's been your operating model for what heaven is. And again, I challenge you, broaden it out just, just a little bit, right? Um, unless they're born again. To which Nicodemus replies, how can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, nobody can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Now, very quickly, when John relates conversations um, in which Jesus has a conversation with an inquirer, John follows kind of a pattern, right? He tends to follow this pattern, and we see this pattern very clearly here. The inquirer says something, right? You're the you're you must be from God because you're just doing all these crazy, amazing things, um, verse 2. And then Jesus answers in a saying that's hard to understand. You must be born again. <laughs> what? That saying is always misunderstood or the hearer, the inquirer gets angry. As you read through the, the, the book of John, you'll find some people just misunderstanding and others just getting angry. Um, then Jesus says something with even, it's even more difficult to understand. In chapter, in verse 5, you, you must be born of water and spirit. And then there follows a, a discussion, a discourse, right, for pretty much the rest of the chapter usually. John uses this message so that people can see, so that we can see people working through this stuff with their own minds, with their own thinking. And, 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 I, and I believe he does that same thing for us. We John allows us to see and to experience experiential learning, right? Kind of walk it through in your own mind. Um, so what does it mean to be born again and be born of the water and spirit? To be born again is simply to undergo such a radical change that it's like a new birth. Born again is a great translation, by the way. I, I get up here and it sounds like I poo-poo some of the translations. I do not mean to do that. I just mean to expand our, our, our understanding that we're not Jewish, we're not Hebrew, we're not, we're not Greek. Um, there were three really meanings behind to be born again. One, from the very beginning, right? Anything that starts from the very beginning, radically from the very beginning, right? Like getting into a time machine, very beginning, and the second one is, is, is again, right? To do something again as, as in a, a second time around. Um, and the third meaning is, is from above, right? Therefore, from God. And really, again, our, our translation, born again, works for all three, works, works brilliantly for all three. Nicodemus seems to have taken the second understanding in, in rather a crude way. What? Wait a minute, I got to enter my mommy's tummy and that, that's crazy talk there, Pastor Jesus. I don't think they called him that, sorry. But I think there's more to Nicodemus' answer than that. In his heart, there was a great unsatisfied longing. It's as if he had said with, with a certain sense of resignation and, and even defeat, you talk about being born anew, 
You talk about this radical, fundamental change, which is so necessary. I know that it's necessary, but in my experience, it's impossible. There is nothing I would like more. But you might as well tell me a full-grown man to enter into my mother's womb and be born all over again. He wants to be changed, but but he can't do it by himself. Kind of what the Jewish people and even us are, are, are trapped in if we don't know Christ Jesus. It's not the desirability of this change that Nicodemus questioned it possibly is. I mean, he knew this all too well. It's the possibility. You know, not the desirability, but the possibility. Nothing in his life had lent itself to believing that such a thing was possible. Right? Jews thought that the law would take care of it, that they would experience that, that new birth simply by the law. What he didn't yet understand is that only when God's grace enters us and takes possession of us and changes us that we can give him the reverence and devotion that is his due, that we can experience the abundant life that Jesus promises. It's only through Jesus Christ that we are reborn. It's when he enters into possession of our hearts and our lives that change comes. And when that happens, Jesus says, we're born or or, or reborn of, of water and spirit. Water in, in Scripture represents cleansing. That, that was kind of John the Baptist's thing. He, he baptized, and, and he was all about repentance and, and preparing for God. Change the ways. Change your ways. Turn around. Start walking in the direction toward God instead of away from God. When Jesus takes possession of our lives, when we love him with all of our heart, the sins of the past are forgiven and forgotten. Scripture says as far as the east is from the west. That's amazing. And then the Holy Spirit traditionally all about power, right? When Jesus takes possession of our lives, it's not only that the past is forgotten and forgiven. If that were so, we would simply the next day go and make a whole big mess of everything again. That was the problem for the Jewish people. The law never saved them. The law just pointed out, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're bad, you're bad every single day. And you were because you simply didn't have the power of the Spirit to get a leg up on this sin thing. We as Nazarenes, we believe in an optimistic grace. We believe that in the filling of the Holy Spirit, we can, we don't have to sin, right? We'll continue to make mistakes, but we don't, when given a little bit of time and thought, we don't have to. We have the power not to. When Jesus takes possession of our lives, again, it's not only that we're forgiven and our sins are forgotten, but if we now have power, when the Holy Spirit enters our lives, we're finally able to, to be what by ourselves we could never be and to do what by ourselves we simply could never do. Water and Spirit stand for the cleansing and the strengthening power of Christ, which wipes out the past and gives victory in the future. Right? Who can't get behind that? <laughs> That's amazing stuff. Finally, in this passage, John lays down a great law. Flesh gives birth to flesh. And the spirit gives birth to spirit. A person by themselves is flesh. And a lot of times people kind of read into that too much. Flesh, oh, sexual sin. No, flesh is just our humanness. A person by themselves is human, right? And their power is limited to what a human can do. By yourself, you can be none other than defeated in frustration. That both Nicodemus and we all know this is the human predicament, But the very essence of the Spirit is power and life. 
which are beyond human power and human life. And when God enters our lives and spirit takes possession of us, the defeated life of human nature becomes the victorious life of God. Now listen, if you've identified with Nicodemus in any way this morning, and you, did just, you, you didn't quite understand what, what, what this Jesus thing was all about, um, he wants to answer that secret prayer that you've been praying that, that you could experience heaven on earth. He wants to bring heaven to you right where you sit, right in the middle of whatever mess you're currently in or whatever confusion you're currently experiencing. We're going to receive receive communion. Again, if anybody needs the elements, would you just raise your hand and somebody in the back will will get you that for you. Um, When we receive communion, we receive the very life of God. When we take in the bread and, and... the juice, the body and blood of Christ, we're taking in real food and real life. Food that gives life and and drink that gives life, not just for the moment, but for eternity. Jesus is inviting you to join him in his mission. We're co-missioned. He calls us to be beside him in his mission, co-missioned in bringing heaven down to earth. And I want to invite you today to to have something to celebrate. So as you prepare your elements, if you're, you've been sitting here, or you're sitting at home, and you want to celebrate because life's gotten you down and you haven't been able to get a leg up on life, y'all just bow your heads for me, with me for just a moment. Father, we, we just pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that the people right now who have not made that decision to trust you that after hearing the words of John and the words of Jesus, that they have decided, I, I want to trust you. I, I, I want to be a part of this thing that you're doing, this, this redeeming of all creation. And I want to experience right now heaven on earth. It's a fairly simple thing. Father, I, I'm, I'm sorry for the things I've done. I, I've, I've been that wayward son. Um, But God's word says that you're, you're up there on the watchtower and you're watching. And it, Father, I want to make your son the Lord of my life. I, I want to be saved. I want to be at one with you again. I want to experience heaven on earth. And like Douglas said so well, that can only be done through Jesus Christ. So Father, take over. Take over the driver's seat. I'll slide over. I keep getting into wrecks. For every person that prayed this prayer, thank you, Father. For those who maybe just a little bit later today, they're going to make that, that request. Father, thank you for that. We love you, Father. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.